we're too quick to overthink things, to uh, premeditate, uh, to uh, almost kind of uh, define what we're looking for before we go and look for it. You know, I'm I'm more open to receiving the world uh, in that sense. I'm Peter Holiday, and this is The Land Behind, a podcast exploring the relationship between photography, perception, and place. In this episode, I speak to Richard Bevan from his home in upstate New York about his experience being a British photographer, living and working in the post-9-11 landscape of the United States. During our in-depth conversation, we remember the deep and complex geological, cultural, political, and colonial histories of the Hudson River Valley, where Richard now has his home. We consider what these multi-layered narratives of the Hudson watershed might reveal about the tensions and possibilities of the current state of American society itself. Having previously worked in the corporate world of advertising, Richard began to pursue a career in photography in 2011. Since then, he has worked on assignments for clients such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and The Guardian. In 2020, he published the monograph, All of Us, in collaboration with the publisher, Daylight Books. Focusing on the post-industrial and agricultural landscapes of upstate New York, Richard's artistic practice seeks to reveal the spirit of the Hudson Valley in the faces of the people who inhabit it. With this attitude in mind, he stresses the importance of interpersonal dialogue to his practice, including the imperative of being open to different ways of looking at the world. While Richard's view of America is optimistic, it nonetheless remains critical. For him, the United States is not a myth, but an everyday reality where many still struggle. A strong work ethic and sense of determination is often evident in the faces and gestures of the people he photographs. From his own perspective as an immigrant, he acknowledges America as a young country and suggests that if such a nation is to live up to its founding principles, its people must collectively strive to remain open accommodating and attentive to different perspectives and attitudes, particularly those voices that we may happen to disagree with. As Richard himself was raised in the southwest of England, I also ask him about the parallels and contrasts between his own journey and the perception of the English-born American landscape painter Thomas Cole, who arrived in the Hudson River Valley in the early 19th century. But before my conversation with Richard begins, I'd first like to say a few words about the podcast and how you can support these conversations should you wish to do so. Since launching this project just over a month ago, I'm already fortunate to have received an international audience from countries such as Japan, Switzerland, Greece, Brazil, Iceland, Nepal, Puerto Rico and many more. In early May, the podcast made it to the top 10 in the visual arts category on the UK podcast charts. Of course, None of these achievements would have been possible without the support of my listeners and the contributions of my guests. So far, I've had the chance to share conversations with talented photographers such as Shan Davey, Alice Tomlinson and Simon Murphy, as well as the ecological anthropologist Tim Ingold. I hope you've enjoyed listening to our conversations as much as I have facilitating them. As I continue to grow this community of perspectives, I would like to ask you as a member of my audience for your support via Patreon. Whilst I remain committed to sharing long-form and accessible content for my audience free of charge, your generous contribution will help me cover the costs associated with creating this podcast. I understand that not every listener is in a position to pledge their financial support to this project, and at the end of the day, 
your listenership means more to me than the money. Nonetheless, if you happen to find value in these conversations and would like to help me nurture this community, please consider supporting me on Patreon via the link in the description. For only the price of a cup of coffee, you will gain access to a range of rewards and benefits, including exclusive videos, posts and recordings concerning my life as a photographer. There is also the chance for one-to-one mentoring with myself. Lastly, I would like to offer a big thank you to Isabel Hernandez of the Spanish online photography archive Audioteca Fotografica for being my first patron. Please consider viewing the important work she is doing herself at Audioteca Fotografica, a sound archive centred on the pictures and reflections of photographers. So, without further ado, my conversation with Richard Bevan now begins. Richard Bevan, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me this evening or afternoon or morning, wherever you are. <laughs> well, thank you, Peter. No, I appreciate your interest. Great to be here. A recurring theme through these conversations seems to be the phenomenon of journeying. I was very pleased to have on the podcast the anthropologist Tim Ingold, who says in his book, Being Alive, and I quote, to lay a path through the world is to dwell, end quote. In other words, to be human is to be on the move. Furthermore, the photographer Alice Tomlinson, who I've also spoken with, has travelled across, across Europe to make her images about sites of pilgrimage. Although you're originally from England, um, uh, Exeter, I believe, you are known for your long-term documentary work focusing on the cultural geography of the Hudson River Valley. As a British photographer living in upstate New York, I'm particularly curious to learn how you ended up in America and... What was it that inspired your journey to the opposite shore of the Atlantic? Well, uh, okay, there's quite a lot in that to to think through. So it, I'll start. I'll start at the beginning in terms of my journey to to America. Uh, I was in the advertising business, uh, really, for probably about ten, twelve years uh, in London, and. Um, I had the opportunity to to move companies to transfer essentially from uh, the UK to the US. Um, it was at a time when uh, in the UK, because it was a smaller market, we were quite a lot more advanced in terms of our thinking about uh, consumers, uh, people buying products and, and their behavior and, and, and uh, building that into advertising thinking. And I, my particular role was on the media placement side. So basically thinking about when and where people would be most receptive to an advertising message uh, based on their motivations, on their behavior, uh, real insights about people, um, how they bought products, how they, how they thought about services, how they interacted, interacted with each other, how they used different types of media, newspapers, posters, television. In contrast with that, in America, um, because of the scale of the market, you know, it's it just vast when you think about the economy here and the geography and the number of people. Um, essentially, advertising was delivered through media that were were almost like pipelines. You know, you would throw messages down the television pipeline, uh, have a huge number of poster sites or billboards, 
uh, you know, it would basically be a massive administrative task. And there was a sort of sense of enlightenment, I think, in America at the time in advertising that was, okay, we can we can actually get an edge here on our competitors if we can bring in some thinking that allows us to really understand consumers as people and to use that thinking to become more influential in their lives with our advertising in terms of where, when and where it's placed. And so they needed to bring uh, that expertise, that experience from the UK into the US to sort of fast track that experience. So I was lucky enough to uh, work in a company that was an international company, and I was offered the opportunity to uh, to do exactly what I've just described, to to transfer and bring uh, my experiences working in the UK to the US and and essentially, you know, kind of be amongst a number of people from the UK market at that time who were all kind of working for different companies who were sort of trying to spearhead that effort um, in, in America. And so uh, that's basically what brought me and my, at the time, young family to the US. Our, our, my wife and I had um, have two daughters, and at the time they were uh, age two and four. And uh, I remember actually quite clearly that the, I think it was the day after we'd told our families we were moving to the US, 9-11 uh, happened. So that was back in 2000, September 2001. And uh, we pushed ahead with our plan and we arrived um, we arrived at JFK Airport in January 2002, and we've been here ever since. And uh, of course, we found a very different, very different scenario um, when we arrived because it was it was directly after 9/11. Uh, obviously, some extremely sinister things had been happening, were about to happen, uh, but at the same time, there was this great sense of sort of unity and possibility and rebuilding i think and uh you know it, it was really a, an amazing time um to to be here and that was the start of my journey and um you know i worked in advertising until about 2010 2011 and then uh had been photographing pretty much ever since i was age 10 i've been photographing and was photographing all the way through but decided in 2010 to uh, really call it a day in advertising and to uh, just focus on my photography and some things we had going on with the family. So what has it been like as a documentary photographer working in the post 9-11 age? What kind of moods and feelings have you observed in that period? And Well, you know, you... <laughs> There's there's so much that's happened. Obviously, I think we'd have to break it down into sort of sections. I I I started photographing commercially, so doing assignments for newspapers and magazines around about 2011. And uh, at that time, um, I was just starting to get work from uh, the Guardian in UK, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. You know, up mainly up and around uh, the area that I live in, which is a rural area. Uh, about two hours north of New York City, due north. And um, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the feelings, the post 9-11 feelings, it wasn't so much, uh, let me just think, I mean, it wasn't so much that 
I was sensing that in the assignments I was getting. Um, it was more later in, in, in my photography as I started to develop my personal photography that I started um, <clears throat> unearthing, if you will, some of that sensibility. Um, you know, I, I basically uh, started photographing Trump supporters, for example, in 2016, before anybody, I think, really even seriously thought he could become president. And, you know, I started to see um, perhaps the sort of post 9-11 era coming through then. And it had the same kind of uh, roots. It echoed a lot of what was happening with Brexit at the time. And uh, Brexit was something I personally was against. But I was just really fascinated to get under the skin of um, a why uh, some of the people I was coming across were, you know, so fervently in favour of Donald Trump and his his uh, kind of potential policies, and b you know what what moved people to uh, essentially make their own signs for Donald Trump, which is what what kind of allowed me to find them. I would I would be travelling around the landscape. And I would see these kind of very elaborate, handcrafted, handwritten, painted, built signs that people had made for in support of Donald Trump. And as I said, this was, you know, a good number of months before the presidential election of, of 2016. And I think it was a group of people who really feel like, um, you know, as we know now, people felt that they'd been forgotten, that they'd been left behind in what had been a sort of rebuilding, uh, a demise of manufacturing in many in many uh, areas. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, traditional jobs had gone out the window, had moved offshore, and uh, people had become fed up with it. Um, and, and I think that there, there are many similarities with Brexit. And, you know, it allowed for some really amazing conversations that I had with people, although they, although their politics and their kind of feelings were very different to mine, um, we were able to really connect via this common thread of what was happening, what they had heard about happening in Europe and what was happening here in the US. And it really, it really was an eye opener for me. And it, it kind of, that, that particular study that I did, that particular series of portraits really opened my eyes to the possibilities of what I could experience through photography and, and you know, um, opened my eyes to how I could discover more about how people thought and felt through my photography. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a long-winded kind of way of answering your question. But, you know, that's that's when I really first started feeling, you know, the post-9-11 kind of effects, if you will. So you're cl you're clearly very skeptical of uh, Trump's populism and also Brexit, but at the same time you're you believe in the principle of interpersonal dialogue, speaking yes. with one another. I, I, yeah, I, I am I am skeptical. I'm not. I mean, I you know I I'm I, I I'm not in favour of Trump. I'm not in favour of his policies. I wasn't in favour of Brexit. Um, I'm not saying that to to provide a sort of overtly political kind of flavor to this conversation. But I think that um, it is really, really important to, to make sure that to the extent we can, we appreciate 
other points of view and that we're able to talk about other points of view um, in, in a way that actually allows us all to understand each other on on you know uh, better, on a better level. And I think we've lost, you know, not just here, but in the UK and many places, I'm sure, we've lost that ability to 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 do that. You know, things have become hyper polarized. You know, I think there's a there was a study from the Brookings Institute I remember reading about talking about, you know, how we've become hyper conflicted and uh, that, that, that this was separating, you know, not just sort of tradition along traditional lines you know, politics, but also families and friends and colleagues uh, that, you know, we've, we've sort of lost that ability to, to see, to see each other's point of view, even if we don't fully appreciate it or believe in it. And uh, I think that's a, that's a real loss. And I think that uh, it, it, it seems to be only increasing. And of course it serves certain people. Well, um, people like Trump, in my opinion, um, you know, there are other examples as well. So, yes, I am skeptical of it, but I'm optimistic and hopeful about um, our ability to get back to interpersonal dialogue. And I feel like my photography serves that purpose in my life. Um, you know, to give you a, a practical example, when I was photographing um, the Trump supporters, you know, I'd, I would literally, I'd drive past, maybe I would, go knock on their door or I'd, I'd, I'd be able to contact them in some way. And they would quite often ask me if I was planning to vote for Trump. And I, I, first of all, I, I don't vote in the US. I'm a green card holder, so I'm not able to vote in the US. I did, I did vote uh, in the Brexit um, election, uh, not the election or the, you know, the um, uh, uh, voting, but I would be very honest with them. I think that's the key. So I would say, listen, it's not, it, I, I would not vote for Donald Trump. It's not uh, in my interest to vote for Donald Trump. I don't believe actually it's in your interest to vote for Donald Trump. Here's why. Um, but, you know, I appreciate that you have a different opinion and that you have gone to the extent of uh, building your own sort of, you know, publicity, your own sign in support of Donald Trump, and that fascinates me. You know, that what is it that, what is it that made you get out of bed one morning and say, "I'm going to build a a mm -hmm. sign that's twenty feet by, you know, that's six meters by three meters, and it's painted quite elaborately, and you're going to stick that on the side of a building you have? What makes you do that? You must, your feelings must run so deep. Uh, so there's a real. That, um, you know, there's a real authenticity to their conviction. Oh, I'm doubtless. I mean, I think that I photographed something like 20 people in the first year, and I went back and photographed many of them in the second year. And uh, I think auth authenticity has become a slightly <clears throat> sort of overused word in many respects. It's sort of lost a bit of its meaning, I think, potentially. But uh, it, I mean, in the way I understand what you're saying, and I would totally agree that that you know there was. There was something that was driving these people that was so deep and so genuine that um, it, I felt like I really wanted to understand it better, even though it was, you know, the polar opposite of where I was coming from. And how many of these people became your friend? Um, I'm still photographed. I'm still in contact with a number of them. Um, there's there's one uh, there's one 
person that I photographed uh, that I've been photographing every year since. So I think I'm on my seventh year now. Uh, and I would say, you know, I'd say in that sense, he is a friend. Do I see him on a week to week basis? No. Uh, do I see him twice a year? Yes, I do. And we we have a fine conversation. He's decided to talk less about politics. He became so frustrated with it. Um, but this is a chap who, you know, he 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 um, works in a leather factory in a very rundown um, uh, town that used to have almost a hundred leather factories and now has four or five. And, you know, he was driven to go onto YouTube and he's an army veteran. And he learned how to uh, make his own giant sign and embroider letters and, and visuals onto it. And it, it, he literally hung it from the side of a four story warehouse building. So, you know, it was just incredible, really, the passion and drive that that was obvious. So even though you might not share the same opinions as these Trump supporters, is there anything rewarding about these relationships? Well, I think it's rewarding because it allows me to understand um, just what's driving them. And I, I, I love... You know, the part of the job that I really love or part of the activity that I really love is that moment where you can have that conversation, you know, regardless of what your political beliefs are, religious beliefs. Um, you know, it, it's just an amazing moment when you connect, when you can connect with somebody on that level and to that extent, you know. So in that sense, perhaps your practice is quintessentially American. Uh, in what way? being open to others regardless of their religion or their opinion yes. or where they might come yes, from that, at, at least that that um romanticism at least of what america traditionally is meant to stand for yeah i mean america is you know it's built on democracy um it's built on people uh you know uh adventuring and pioneering and going on a journey and we should also we should also be very clear in this conversation of course that um you know native american peoples were here long before mm -hmm. you know we colonized uh the us and uh you know we need to make sure we pay due respects uh in, in that sense um but you know the 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 spirit of the people that built what you might call modern day america um you know, it was very pioneering. People people did have to work together. There was a very sort of uh, folky sort of uh, atmosphere to it. And I think I think that uh, perhaps, yes, what I'm doing and the way that I uh, present my work is is in that spirit. You know, it is it is about discovery and it is about um, understanding the spirit. You know, I'm drawn to. I was thinking about this the other day, you know, when I think about music that I enjoy or books that I like reading, um, you know, quite often it has these sort of very earthy, uh, these very sort of earthy, real, uh, spirited, um, down to earth tone to it, you know, or tones to it. And, uh, you know, I think my, what I go looking for in my work is the same. It's not necessarily working class, but I think there's a sort of, spirit about the work that uh that 
that hopefully comes through the, the sort of motif of the sort of hardworking, um, you know, adventuring uh, uh, peoples, you know. With that in mind, in what way might your images be critical of American democracy? Other than your scepticism at populism or? Well, I think I think they might be critical in the sense that um, clearly American democracy hasn't worked for everybody. Um, I mean, by definition, obviously, um, at any given point in time, the, the, the situation is going to work for some people better than it works for other people. And, you know, I think uh, images that I images that I make, uh, I try and make them very real, very honest is the word that I would use. Um, and, you know, sometimes that involves showing things that perhaps suggest that things aren't entirely working out for people. You know, it may it may be, you know, set in a slightly decrepit environment, for example, um, the people might look a bit, um, you know, weathered and torn, for example. Uh, you know, that's just how it is. Um, so, you know, I think that's how to answer your question. I, I you know, um, I'm. I try not to, I think my work thus far has been quite objective. You know, I show people as they are, as I find them, as I think that um, they see themselves. And uh, it's only now I'm bringing in a bit more subjectivity to my work now. But an example of that would be um, in terms of uh, the critical nature of things. I I photographed for, for a couple of years Leading up to the pandemic, I photographed uh, Irish community, Irish American community um, across the Hudson River from me, uh, and they're in a community where they're really keeping the Irish culture alive. You know, there are there are it's probably the biggest immigrant, one of the biggest immigrant groups in the U.S. is is of Irish origin. I think there are over thirty million people who claim some form of Irish descendancy uh, in this country. Um, but there, there's a there's a town um, again. It's about two hours north of New York City. It's quite close to me, and it was where, when the the, the early waves of Irish immigrants came into this country, they would go to be together. It was close enough to the city that they could get to for a vacation, and they would go uh, every summer. They'd get out of the heat of the the city when they had their two weeks off, the jobs that they were doing. They would be together. They would celebrate with food and music and their culture. And it was a very strong, a very strong community built up there. There are also communities for the German community, the Polish community, the Jewish communities that built up in a similar way with sort of summer camps and bed and breakfast and that sort of thing. And of course, as cars became more popular, air travel decreased in price, uh, air conditioning came in. That first generation immigrants became second generation immigrants, third generation immigrants, and so on. That these these centers, these places, became less relevant because people needed them less. But there's a group of people who uh, are still trying to keep things alive there and trying to keep the Irish culture going uh, in many different ways. And that particular town has been uh, has been. Illustrated has been uh, shown by a number of different media outlets as being a town in you know a town in demise. That everything is negative there. That you know it once was something and now it's this. And 
in a way sort of what hope does it have or that people who go there and have business ideas are somehow trying to save what's there and I was very clear when I was photographing people there and I made a series of about 30 30 portraits there that I I was interested in the positive side of it how they were keeping the culture alive uh, what it meant to them um, you know that how they interacted with each other what being Irish meant, how they think about their homeland, uh, you know, it, it, and so, you know, the cynicism that 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 you asked me about, it would be very easy to to gravitate to it, um, to to for it to become the sort of lowest common denominator, if you like, in my work. But I, I've chosen to uh, most of the time, kind of go for a sort of higher common factor, which is, you know, a more positive way of thinking about it to show people in a positive spirited light, you know, because that's how I see people. And I'm hopeful, regardless of their politics, regardless of their religions, you know, I'm hopeful that people can thrive and prosper in their own way. And, uh, you know, I guess it just reflects a sort of faith in human nature, doesn't it? At least I hope so. But what does human nature mean to you? In an American context, well, I mean, fundamentally, how we all live together, basically. I mean, right. you know, that's what it comes down to. And we're, you know, I mean, there's plenty of examples where we're not doing such a great job of that. And of course, through history, there have been, there's always examples of it. You know, whether it's wars or mm. whatever it may be. But you know, I think that this this country is built is built like so many countries on people working together. Um, you know, so you know that's. That's what we need to think about. And I'm I'm fascinated by all the different components of that. I mean, I often talk about the personal work that I do, the, the work that I don't do for assignments, because I guess it's all personal work, but the work, the work I do that's self-initiated um is is just really trying to reflect that human nature and just, you know, like a positive spin on things, you know. Yeah. Well, modern America is often, it's often said that modern America is uh, built on the myth of manifest destiny. This sense, this promise that there was yeah. something to be found there. Um, yeah. And that's why many people went there in the first place. Um, yeah. They, they, they were originally perhaps fleeing um, wars in their own country or... Uh, for example, a lot of uh, Scots during the Highland Clearances, um, when the landowners pushed um, the, I think it was tenant farmers off the off their land in the glens of Scotland, many of those people ended up in the American colonies as well. Mm. Um, you 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 chose to go there. You had a chance to go there. Um, yeah. What have you What have you built for yourself there? Uh, tell us where you where you are at the moment. So, by by, by the way, yes, manifest destiny is is behind it all. And I think that can be a very destructive thing, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know we should also know that as well, of course. But uh, in my case, uh, I mean, I would I would say you know I I built a life there. I was very lucky. I had the opportunity. I had a I had what I would describe as a a great life and family. Um, before I moved here. So um, in a way, I built a different life. I wouldn't say I built a life, I built a different life here. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm still lucky enough to be able to obviously get back to the UK and visit. 
uh, fairly frequently. Um, but basically where I'm situated at the moment is about two hours north of New York City, um, uh, about 125 miles. And, uh, you know, most people I'm sure will be familiar with can picture kind of where Manhattan is. And so that the Hudson River goes due north up to the Adirondack Mountains. And uh, at some point, I'm guessing, I think it was about 20,000 years ago, you know, the Hudson River Valley was a glacier. And, um, you know, uh, when that left, it left a very kind of uh, interesting landscape, which on the, on the western side of the Hudson River uh, is very sort of, uh, is relatively mountainous, wooded, craggy, uh, kind of dark and mysterious in many ways. And that's the Catskill Mountains. And then on the east side of the river, um, it left uh, arable lands, uh, farming land. You know, a lot of the uh, glacial deposits now make up the kind of fertile fields of the, the Hudson Valley area. And uh, so on this side of the river, I'm on the east side of the river in a county called Columbia County. And um, it, it's fantastic for farming. You know, it's uh, over time has served as um, uh, a bit of a food basket for the city, of course, uh, but not just in terms of uh, food. Uh, the Hudson River itself up in this area has provided ice in the winter. So before the advent of uh, refrigeration in the city, the, they would take these, they would manufacture ice from the river and take it down to the city. Uh, bricks as well, they would make bricks on the river. And so the river runs straight into the sort of, uh, out into the bay where Manhattan is. So we have the, this fantastic uh, spectacle of the Hudson River that has kind of two side, distinct sides to it. Um, the, there's a train line, beautiful train line that runs down the Hudson River uh, from uh, the, the, the biggest town near me, which is called Hudson, into the center of Manhattan. So I can be there in you know, two hours, pretty much door to door uh, on the train. And uh, so very lucky, I have the best of both worlds in many respects. When I think of New York, I think of uh, progressive cosmopolitanism. What kind of yeah. contrast is there um, between where you are and between New York City in terms of um, culture, the political culture? Is it Trump country? Well, it's become, it's become more and more brackish in a way, by which I mean that um, I think traditionally... Uh, this area of the world would have been um, uh, sort of uh, what you describe as Trump country. Uh, let's call it sort of conservative traditional values uh, rooted in, you know, agriculture. And then the city, of course, was always more cosmopolitan, progressive, liberal. Um, you know, now it's become much more progressive um, up here, uh, partly because there are transplants, say, like myself. Um, or weekenders, you know, it's a very popular sort of weekend destination for people who uh, live in the city that they're visiting or they have a second property here. Um, so it, it's become a lot more sort of uh, mixed, this particular county that I'm in, uh, this particular area of the Hudson Valley that I am is probably 50-50. Uh, if you look at the most recent election results, it probably splits down the middle in terms of how it voted um, Democrat and Republican. So in a way that makes it more interesting because there's this sort of tension here between 
uh, lots of different factors, whether it's people who live full time and people who are weekenders or people who are Republican and people who are Democrat, people who are in traditional businesses, uh, manufacturing, agriculture and more sort of uh, recent businesses like services, finance, technology. Uh, so you've got these sort of inherent tensions that it's it's not necessarily one thing or the other. Uh, and if we sort of just uh, kind of zoom out a little bit to think about New York State, which is in itself about two thirds the size of the UK, just to put it into perspective, you know, New York State is essentially a, a democratic state uh, in terms of its voting. And the reason for that is the big city. So New York City, Buffalo, uh, Syracuse, these types of Albany, these types of uh, of cities where, of course, the majority of the people live tend to tend to be quite heavily democratically oriented. And then once you get outside of that, the further and further you go into the rural areas, it, it generally becomes more uh, conservative, more Republican. So you've got this very kind of uh, mixed situation. It's not one thing or the other unless you happen to be in the cities or in the deep rural areas. So where I am is a mixed bag. And like I say, I think that makes it a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. But there are not only political differences there. There are also cultural differences. There are Mennonite populations there, for example. You previously told me that. Yeah. Can yeah. you explain a little bit I about mean, that? There are... There are many different there are many different communities and groups of people, and I and that's that's actually what I really gravitate to 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 photograph. I really love um, you know understanding this mosaic of different groups of communities that exist here and make up the overall population. I'd love to think longer term that ultimately, in my own small way, I'm providing some form of archive of of all these different this different mosaic of communities that that do exist here at this time, which is, you know, I think a very kind of interesting, uh, challenging time in American history. Um, you know, America is still a very young country, really. If you think about it in relation to the UK and some of the European countries, it's not that old of a country. As somebody described it recently as being a bit like a teenager, you know, it's still trying to figure out things. And it still has that kind of, Attention to it, but it still also has that great sense of possibility, and and uh, so you've got all these different communities that reflect that. And you know, the Mennonite community, for example, in my areas, is a very small community, but it exists and it's part of uh, the overall uh, population, of course. And I've been lucky enough to, to photograph some of the folks in that community. Um, you have, you know, agricultural community versus, uh, as I said earlier, service uh, and tourism industries sometimes they're at odds with each other um yeah you've got you've got a whole the whole gamut of different uh communities that exist and uh perhaps one example i can give you of of um how uh my own work has been able to sort of uh show me and teach me about how these communities can come together is the the work that i did in in ghent which is the town next door to where I am now, where I lived for uh, about uh, 15 years uh, before we moved here. Um, I, I made 276 portraits of people in the town during the bicentennial. The motivation essentially was there is going to be no archive of people who are here at this time in this town. Um, 
because everybody's taking you know billions of photographs on their phones but then they're all committed to the attic or the basement or wherever and they're all sort of rotting away and the photographs go with them and yet at the same time if you i was speaking to one of my neighbors who is an 80 year old uh a gentleman up the road and he he sort of went into his kitchen and he pulled out a piece of cardboard from his kitchen cupboard and it had this beautiful black and white photograph on it and he could tell me everybody who was in it the year was written on it he knew the names of the people they were written on the back and i thought wow there's going to be nothing like that uh for this bicentennial which was in 2018 so i spent a year i made 276 individual portraits more than eight out of ten of the people that i photographed i'd never met before um i just kind of found people and so that was enlightening but uh to sort of get to my point of the story we uh i was offered to put up the photographs at a local art center which i did we we spent a number of nights uh burning the midnight oil putting i printed out all the all of the photographs and we put them all up in windows we had a slide projection and we invited nobody had seen their portrait until that point and we invited people to come to an opening and i photographed people from all walks of life different religions all the groups the, the mennonite groups the the agricultural, the, the weekenders. I think the the shortest period of time somebody had been in Ghent as either a worker or a resident was five days and the longest period of time was over 90 years and we had everything in between. And so we had an opening and um, it was really a very touching moment for me, very humbling moment for me. That's That's a better word for it. Over 300 people came and... They were people from so many different walks of life. And it was at a time uh, we're talking about um, the end of 2018, where Trump had been in office, uh, I think, about 18 months at that point. And it was a group of people who had come together in one town that was a town that was split 50-50 in terms of how it voted. Um, yet they were all there for completely non-political reasons. We had the Veterans of Foreign Wars group. Uh, we had so many different groups and they all came together and they all just really enjoyed being together looking at the photographs and that was a really memorable moment for me because it just gave me great faith in how uh what i'm doing can interest people and can give people some level of hope about uh being together and interrelating in a way that uh, is more positive yeah, I actually have, um, well, it was my old guitar teacher uh, who, and her, well, his wife. They now live on the Isle of Skye, but they're originally from Georgia. Um, yeah. And I remember I had a conversation with them once about politics in America. And they told me, they're very liberal themselves, very progressive themselves. And they joked and they said, I asked them, what, what is it? What are, what are conservative Americans like? And they joked and they said, well, they may love their guns. Uh, and they may say things that I don't necessarily agree with. But the irony is that unlike my liberal friends, <laughs> they'll be the first people to invite you into their house for coffee or cake, for example. So mm. 
Yeah, it just reminded me of that story of, um, you know, you can, you may have your differences, but there's, there's a, co- there's a commonness there as well. There's, there's a common yeah. ground. There's a, there's a place to sit at the table and, and break bread with each other. And me and, me and Shan spoke about this as well, the importance of dialogue with one another. And this, this theme keeps coming through again and again and again. The first person I had on the podcast, for example, was Simon Murphy. And he's yes. photographing um, the, the community in Govan Hill, which is an area of Glasgow. And that was all about the... Well, that, port- that, portrait, that uh, body of portraiture speaks to this idea of the, of the common ground where... We, we, we're, we're allowed to be ourselves. We're allowed to be different, but we can still get on with each other too. And perhaps that's when I, when I said to you earlier that perhaps your idea of America represents the quintessential image of America. That's what I was speaking to. The, 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 the founding principles, regardless of how flawed they may be in practice, um, the, those founding principles upon which modern American democracy is founded. And obviously, as we've, we've touched upon, American democracy isn't, isn't perfect. Um, and as you've acknowledged yourself, it's a work in progress. You know, it's a very young, yes. con- very young country and it's still trying to find its way. But uh, with that in mind, with, the, with it being a young country, uh, Europeans have only been traveling there for 400 years. I think uh, Jamestown was founded in 1607, I believe. And that, uh, where was that? That was... Uh, Virginia. Virginia, Virginia yeah. North Carolina. One of the I Carolinas. Think was, I think, yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, yeah it was, uh, may have been yeah. Virginia, but... Uh, On the, in, the Middle Eastern seaboard, yeah. Yeah, so there's a long tradition of Europeans going there and uh, modern American history is, is characterised by many stories of, well, many colonial histories. And with that in mind, are there any indigenous populations uh, that still live in the Hudson River Valley? Um, There are, um, I believe there are a few very small communities in this particular area. I think as you go further upstate, there are uh, larger communities of Native American peoples. Um, But I, I... uh, there are none in this immediate vicinity, as far as I know. But there must have been at one yeah. time. Oh, of course. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, and the place names around here are all are all uh, many hark back to uh, Native American uh, names mm. uh, of the places. But yes, and I mean, there are. I have a, a friend at a, a local farm who who finds has found many many um, relics, arrowheads, um, old stone drills from. Uh, Native American peoples that were here, yeah. uh, for sure. Yeah. But is there any yeah. sort of mood other than the place names and other than the artifacts in the grounds? Yeah. Is 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 there any sense of it being this hallowed ground that um, traditional populations have been displaced from? Is is and does how does your work speak to that, if it, if at all? Um, I I. I don't. I can't honestly say that my work speaks to that. I try and be deeply respectful about the fact that obviously um, Native American people were, you know, displaced uh, from from this area. 
And uh, I would certainly, um, you know, I, I, I'm making a body of work at the moment, which is really about um, uh, trying to get to this kind of idea of people's connectedness um, with, with the land. And of course, um, you, you very quickly get into thinking about the, the native populations and, you know, how they were so um, uh, affected and, uh, you know, uh, uh, displaced. And, you know, I try and talk to other people about it who know more about it than I do so that I can understand that, uh, you know, my work isn't being disrespectful. But to answer your question, um, I, I think it depends on who you talk to. You, you said, is there any sense of it being, you know, hallowed ground? Um, I don't know on a day-to-day -day basis that that is the case. Uh, I'm reminded of it as I drive through some of the beauty of the places and I see the place names and it makes me think on a regular basis about the fact of, you know, who was here long before uh, any of us were here, long before uh, the colonists were here. Um, so it's something that I think about on a very um, frequent basis. Um, but I don't think there's any, in this immediate area, I don't think there's necessarily any kind of... Uh, you know, uh, reference to it that you see every day, for example, other than the place names. Can you give an example of a place name? Tacanic. What does that, do you know what that means? Uh, I believe it means land of the trees. In, in what culture? Uh, I think it is the, um, I think it's Mohican culture. Yeah. Yeah. So is Poughkeepsie also a, it comes from yes, the indigenous I mean, the, the, culture. The, the Hudson, the Hudson Valley is um, populated by names that are either derived from or, or, or from the, the the Native American peoples or from people who have colonized uh, this part of the world. So, of course, you know you had the the English and the Dutch and the Germans, um, some Scandinavians. So you've got. Um, you've got a lot of uh, names that have heritage or, or, or legacy from those populations. So there's a town uh, nearby called Kinderhook, which is from the German population, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, so you'll you'll find many, and there are some English ones that are English related. So Chatham probably is is from yeah, yeah. more of an English English source. <laughs> That's what I thought, and if you yeah. go up in if you go up into New England, obviously the clues there. Yeah, yeah. You know, <clears throat> you got we you know if you drive into Maine, you'll see towns with the name you know Plymouth, Dover, uh, Bath, Topsham, Exeter, um, New Hampshire. You know, so so the references are all there for you to see, and and not so not all of them are one thing. You know, uh, a good number of them around here are Native American, but not all of them. But most people are speaking English as their first language there. Uh, almost everybody, yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So there's no, yeah. not, there's no German being spoken there anymore? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. I mean, yeah. there may be small communities of it. There's, uh, there's uh, for example, some private schools are based on Rudolf Steiner. I don't know whether they might speak some German. Mm -hmm. um, because you know, the Mennonites... So, so really not talking... I just, I know the Mennonites, they have a historical relationship to, is it Germany or Switzerland, historically? Uh, I think it might be Germany, but I'm not clear on that. Yeah. yeah. And they have, of course, have a, they, have, they have a big community in South America as well, I, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but the, as far as I know, they're English speaking. But again, I, I can't be 100% certain on that. But as far as I know, they're English speaking. I would like to turn to... 
this this uh, another artist, another English-born artist, Thomas Cole, um, and ask your perspective uh, about that. Your path through the yeah. world is not unlike Thomas Cole's, who I believe was born in Bolton, and he arrived in the Hudson Valley in the 19th century. Um, and while there are certain parallels between your life and Cole's, the differences are perhaps even more striking with uh, Cole being a painter um, and he was mainly interested in the grand and expansive landscapes of the Catskill Mountains, for example. On the mm. other hand, you are known for your intimate portrait photographs of everyday working class people, as you've just described in quite a bit of detail. But other than being the place where you live, what is it that draws you to the landscape of the Hudson River Valley? What is it that inspires you about this place? Do you think what inspires you is what ins also inspired Thomas Cole? Uh, well, uh, yes, he, as far as I know, he was, <clears throat> he was a Brit and he was part of uh, a school of painting called the Hudson River School uh, of Painting. And there's another very well-known um, painter who operated who painted in this area, who I think was a student of Thomas Cole's uh, by the name of Frederick Church. And what they were drawn to, again, not super schooled on it, but what I understand they were most drawn to is the, the light and the conditions and the drama of the landscape in this part of the world. Uh, as I tried to describe earlier, you know, what was left behind by uh, the, the glacier and the, the sort of natural beauty and, and, and variety uh, in this part of the world, but they, they, the Hudson River School of Art, uh, of painting, is very well known uh, for its very sort of, uh, what's the word, luminous, luminous light. And the light in this part of the world is incredible. Um, it changes so, it can change so quickly. Uh, it does have this sort of luminosity to it. Um, at this time of year, everything looks super verdant you know, um, with all the, the trees that we have, uh, all the natural growth. So I think, I think they were drawn to, to a combination of those things. And inevitably, as a photographer, you're drawn to the quality of light, um, as well as, you know, what you're photographing, which I've, I've described. So I think, you know, that the, the sort of commonality, if you like, the thing that inspires me, certainly, is the light? I mean, I, I find myself. I mean, I did it last night, and again this morning. You know, I look out the window, and it's like, wow, this light is incredible. You know, you sort of, if you could literally respond to it every single time. I guess, I of course, I could. I could just make a photograph of, of the trees around me and what have you. But and I do that frequently. But um, it, it's so incredible, and I think it is inspiring, and it's it, it's a reminder every day of you know the beauty and the possibility. Uh, and then the people obviously is another layer for me. I don't think their work, uh, Thomas Cole's work at least, included many people, certainly not in the sense that I I portray people. I think their people, if they're included, were more you know, sort of smaller characters in the landscape. But, you know, also their work, one point of difference probably is that their work was a very sort of um, romanticized, idealistic kind of portrayal of the landscape and the light the light really kind of pushed them in that direction. It was very sort of uh, this luminescence gave us this very sort of heavenly uh, kind of feel to it. Almost, you know, you almost think that sometimes they're sort of trying to portray paradise in a way. Um, 
Whereas I, my sensibility, I think, um, uh, at least what I'm conscious of, is a sort of realism, um, this kind of down-to-earthness. So I use I use the light that's here to inspire me to photograph people in at certain times and in certain ways. But I'm really fundamentally interested in um, you know portraying the realism of people uh, and not the sort of idealistic view of people. Yeah. Well, Cole was obviously working in the early 19th century, I believe. And at that point, the Hudson River Valley wouldn't have been as industrialized as I'm sure it is to today. Well, yeah. in fact, when he was working, it was probably quite pre-industrial. And now you're working in a landscape which is post-industrial and you can, that shows itself um, in these Trump signs. Yeah, yeah. He was quite critical of, of industrialism, I think, because yeah, you know he had he this was, view yeah. that comes, you know, he had this view that comes through in his in his paintings that is so idealistic and sort of paradise-like, at least to me. They're, they're my descriptions of them, but that I think, uh, how could he not be critical of it? Because he saw its sort of creeping path uh, up the river, I guess. Uh, and, and actually, you know, the river has uh in the 70s somewhere around there you know it's played host to a number of heavy industries that deposited some really ugly uh and destructive things into the river which only now is being cleaned up i mean uh there's been great efforts um and and reparation efforts to to sort the river out in terms of its cleanliness after these heavy industries kind of really polluted it they thought they could throw everything and anything into it you know general electric being one of the companies you know, I think they were making televisions here at one point, and they were just throwing PCBs into the river as part of the, the debris from the, the the kind of you know uh, manufacturing debris. So um, the, the area has really suffered um, in many respects. I did a story for the Guardian a couple of years ago about um, uh, another very toxic chemical that found its way into the ground in a town. Um, it's actually the the one of the one of the um, products that they use in making Teflon. And uh, they were manufacturing it in one of these towns and it found its way into the water supply. And now, even now, you know, maybe 20 years later, uh, mothers are finding it in their breast milk and it's being passed uh, in their breast milk through to their, their children. And their children are starting to suffer some chronic diseases. And then that, that you know, is being denied by local government and the local governments fighting with the federal government about, you know, who's responsible. So, these things have have had terrible kind of consequences, and so yes, we are in a sort of post-industrial uh, situation here in, in 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 many towns, if not most towns in this area. Um, and it is coming through; it does come through in the photographs. And I think again, it, it kind of it was a lot of the you know a lot of these things that happened were fuel for people to really become very disenfranchised with um you know previous uh governments and to really get behind people and ideas like trump because they just felt forgotten and uh you know so but back to the thomas cole thing i think yes he was critical of it and um you know i'd like to think that there's more efforts being made now to really rebuild after uh, after the uh the damage that was done and to recreate jobs and to recreate uh safer environments and to clean up a bit and uh, I'd like to think again that I, you know, I'm not, I don't seek to portray sort of decay and destruction. Um, sometimes 
you know, one has to because it's a relevant part of the story that you're trying to tell. Um, but in general, I like to take an optimistic kind of forward-looking view of it. Mm. Perhaps that's a similarity with Carl, that it's a slightly sort of, you know, idealistic, optimistic kind of spin on it uh, in my own way, you know? Yeah, I'm getting a real image of what this landscape <clears throat> is like and its history. You've um, yeah. you've referenced the place names and they're in, you've explained how they're inherited <clears throat> from... Uh, the traditional indigenous cultures that once inhabited this landscape. And you've spoken about Thomas Cole and we've considered how when he arrived there in the early 19th century, he found this landscape that was on the verge of enormous change, industrial change and urbanization. And he was, he, he, he was worried about, where that would lead. And then if we look back on the 20th century, I can imagine that these places were once bustling red brick mill towns. Um, and now we arrive here um, in the present day and we have the this post 9-11 mood um, Trumpian populism um, that's inspired that, that emerges out of this sense of post-industrial despondency and discontent, um, and yet there's still there's still a hope in your to your perspective as well. You talk about that optimism. Yes, I I, I think there's a lot there's a lot being done to try and recreate not recreate, to try and create a new way forward. You know, tourism is really a, has really uh, become stronger in this part of the world. And, I, you know, we're not, in, we're not in what I would describe as one of the super, in pre, you know, one of the super industrialized areas of old, uh, because this particular part of the Hudson Valley is quite agricultural. So, of course, that's seen its own decline. And, um, you know, but it's agriculture is sort of redesigning itself somewhat around, you know, a more sustainable future. Um, you know, tourism has come into that, um, you know, uh, farmers markets, uh, farm visits, agritourism. You know, there's, there, there are things that are happening that give a great sense of, uh, that provide uh, for a great sense of optimism. And then, there, of course, there are still places that are, still desperately behind you know and um it's it, the the scale of this country even this state new york state is so vast that it takes time but the 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 signs of optimism are there and um you know i i'm sort of i'd like to think that the work i'm making shows that kind of spirited uh attitude the attitude of being able to, to overcome hurdles and obstacles to a sort of can-do spirit, um, a spirit of uh, folkiness and togetherness in a way that, that people can work as communities to do that. Um, you know, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to portray conflict in any way. Um, and, you know, I was part of, I lived on a farm. My wife and I had a farm we restored uh for 10 years we brought it back to productivity so we've 
we live the reality of of what that takes and it's very very hard work um and uh we decided to make a change from that because our, our daughters had grown up and the pandemic kind of impacted things um as well of course and we've 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 moved on to a, a new chapter but i do i have first-hand experience of that but you know we we tried to you know reformulate a farm get a farm back to productivity using a kind of modern sensibility so we did build in a bit of agritourism with a we had a you know a a place you could stay on the farm. We did workshops on the farm where we invited people to come and, you know, um, teach other people about their craft and and their experiences. And and we had uh, a big, you know, uh, my wife's a baker, so you know she had a store on on the farm and uh, made lots of delicious things. And people could come and experience this sort of combination of mm-hmm. you know farming and food and and understand more. Um, about the world of farming and what's happening up here. So, you know, that's just one example of some of the things, the, the way that things are developing up here and, and regenerating. So I suppose the farm was also another way of understanding the landscape, of creating a further connection to it. Yes. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I feel very connected to the outside, to the, to the land myself. Um, you know, I, I'm from... Devon originally and uh, we didn't I didn't grow up on a farm but uh, we certainly were surrounded by them and had a number of family friends who had farms and my wife actually was a she went to agricultural college and um, was a shepherd for a while and still is involved in in helping people with their sheep uh, now and again uh, when it's lambing time so we're very connected to the land here and very connected to the communities that are working the land and um, I was very um encouraged uh in in the book that i produced about the the with the ghent portraits in it um a, uh, a writer by the name of tom lewis um wrote an essay for me in a book um he he was a professor at a university here and he had written a very readable history of the hudson river which i enjoyed and i i, I tracked him down and had a conversation with him and eventually asked him if he would write an essay to provide some context about where where we are in the world where the hudson valley is what's its geography because i i I didn't have any sort of scenic establishing shots thomas cole like kind of views of the area i was doing that through the portraits and the environments in the portraits so his written words Mm -hmm. were really the context for the geography and he said he was kind enough to say that he he felt like uh, the people in a number of the portraits looked like they were, uh, he used the word autochthonous, which basically he was using to mean of the land itself, formed in a place. And uh, um, I really love the idea of that. I think people are, uh, we shouldn't confuse that with indigenous. I'm not trying to say that, but I think people are, people's being, uh, people's attitudes, people's look and feel. Um, is is heavily influenced by um, the environment that they're in. Mm. And, um, you know, then I read a book, I don't know whether you're familiar with uh, Jeff Dyer. He wrote a book called The Ongoing Moment, mm-hmm. um, I think it's called, which is a fabulous, uh, it's really just one long essay about photography. He's not a photographer and he's not really a photographic critic, but he writes beautifully about photography. And he wrote in his book, he was writing about the um, the Dust Bowl era, you know, and the photographs from the, the Dust Bowl era. And he, he was talking about the photographer Dorothea Lang, 
and her work uh, when she worked with the FSA, the Farm Security Administration, back in the in the in the days of the Depression and the Dust Bowl. And he made this comment about how um, her photographs were the story of how, with the look of the land, basically. The I think he I think he said the people, you know, the they were creased and lined and parched, and he was really talking about, in his words, how the land kind of transmutes itself, if I think it was a word he used, to people's clothing and to their hands, and then finally to their faces, you know. So he he really, for me, I just read that over and over again. I've almost memorized it, not quite, as you can tell, but um, it really struck a chord with me because I really felt like, wow, that's when I think about a lot of my photographs, I really love the idea that you can see the land in the people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I it made me think about, I'm working on a sort of new series of portraits at the moment, and I'm thinking about that a lot. And I'm bringing in some more subjective um, aspects to it, if you like, that are, you know, a few still lives, a building here and there, you know, just interesting things I see that give me that subjective sense of the land itself. So, um, you know, I just, uh, I, I'm heavily influenced, I think, by the land around us, by the light around us, perhaps more than I realise. You've spoken about being able to see the land in people. And so in a sense, yeah. your portraits from the Hudson River Valley are a post-industrial river poem, in a sense. Uh, well, that's a very nice way of looking at it, post-industrial river poem. Yes, I think they are They are a poem of sorts. I think, like I say, the way I think about it is it's, it's, I think about it visually, it's like a mosaic for me. It's like these things exist individually, like the population of Ghent or Trump supporters or the Irish-American community or people who have this kind of evident connectedness to the land. But they all they all exist individually, but they all mostly exist in common with each other. And I think that, you know, people often ask me, you know, about the, the work that I did in Ghent, all those portraits in, in, in a year, and they ask me what I've learned from it. And I say, well, there's two things. You know, I would come, I would frequently, if not all the time, come back from photographing people and just say to my wife, Mimi, like, wow, you just, you really cannot judge books by covers. You know, you're so surprised by people and their stories and what they have to offer that you can't assume anything um, because everybody has a story. And, you know, an extension of that is the other thing that I really, that really, sits deep inside me when I when I'm thinking about my photography and photography in general and just you know being here is that in essence we we all have more in common than anything that divides us and I know I mean I think I've I've heard that plenty of other places and I think I've heard it on podcasts that you you've recorded already people have said that and yeah Sean uh, Sean Davis says this yeah yeah I it's it's such a strong thing that you feel when you photograph lots of different people and you're able to have these conversations because, you know, I, I, I maybe should have made that point more clearly. You know, the actual act here is, is 
so much about the journey, not the destination. In other words, the photograph is one thing, but getting to be able to photograph and make it the process of making a photograph is everything. That's when the conversation happens. That's when the understanding is developed. And, you know, when you package all of that up and you've been doing it quite seriously for over 10 years in the same area, you, you, you come away with these themes. And I, I'm certainly very strongly impacted by the sense that uh, and that's that's what gives me my optimism is that there's there's a lot more really inside of of us all that we're all struggling with or all hopeful for whatever it may be we have those things in common and it's they're way more powerful ultimately than the things that that separate us. Yeah, and the paradox is that we can only see what is common to all of us through our respect for each other's differences. Yes, and by talking. And, you know, I think the, I think, you know, <clears throat> if ever there was a good example of, of, of uh, sort of two sides of the coin, you know, you think about, you know, something like social media, for example, you know, it's so incredibly powerful in many, many ways. It's so incredibly helpful, powerful to communities, not, not just in, in, in Europe or in the US, but in, in Asia. Africa, all over the world, that, that it's it's proven to be very helpful in connecting peoples and allowing greater understanding. But on the other side of the coin, it's driven almost everybody that uses it. It seems to me into this into this place where you you are spending, if not all of your time, more and more of your time only relating to people who have the same ideas and interests as you. And the logical extension of that is. Well, we can only get more polarized, not less polarized. So on the one hand, it's promoting, it has the ability to promote and share a greater variety and a deeper level of understanding. But at the same time, it's driving us further into this kind of polarization. And uh, we that's not even getting into uh, the whole world of AI, which of course is a whole other <laughs> specter, specter on the horizon, another what will eventually I'm sure become another example yeah. of two sides of the coin. I want to ask you about your relationship with Devon, but before that, yep. I want to ask you about, well, where do you, how do you think your work fits in the American tradition of documentary photography? I, I feel like I've been influenced by so many different things and people and photographers. Um, how does it fit in terms of the American tradition of documentary photography? I think, you know, at its simplest level, um, I'm a photographer. I'm very passionate about meeting people and photographing them, telling their stories and sharing that with whoever wants to look and listen. And I don't think, you know, I think that um, American documentary photography uh, has been, has often done that, but sometimes has been more a, celebra a celebration of peculiarity, perhaps, of difference. Um, and you know, I think that I'm just trying to think of different examples. Of course, there are so many. Well, you spoke ones. about Dorothy Lang and her work for the. Yeah. It was at the FSA. Yeah. You said. Yeah, yeah, the Farm Securities Administration. 
Yes, I mean, I think I'm trying to show, I think I'm trying to show, you know, the, in some cases, the essential struggle, but, but in an optimistic way um, of, 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 of what some people have to, have to live with. You know, I think I, you know, you think about, um, you know, American street photography, which is a documentary form, of course, um, you know, Gary Winogrand or whatever. And you think about, you know, celebrating things that are slightly unusual or just street scenes that, you know, I don't, that's not, that's not what I'm about. I'm, I'm more about trying to uh, capture this idea of uh, something being, something being built and the optimism of, of what's here and 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 the the vast array of different lives lifestyles and um perspectives that exist in this country so i hope this answers your question I'm, so I'm, a continue you're you're trying to represent a continuum of hope well i would like to think so yes um i certainly do the work in that spirit let's put it that way and uh you know i i i I, I, I'm come back to, I find myself coming back to this all the time, which is a, a quote, a quote that I, um, I used actually in my book, which is by a, a, a British author called Ronald Blythe, who, who wrote about a fictitious, uh, village in Suffolk. I think it, it is, um, although it's based on a real place, it's called Aikenfield. It's a bit of a classic. And, uh, he basically did in words what I, in pictures in 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 Ghent, which is he wrote pen portraits of all the different people in the in the town, the the pig farmer and the dairy farmer and the lady that ran the bread and breakfast and the parish priest and you know a whole array of people. And in his introduction to that book, which is fantastic, um, he 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 said in his introduction that he thinks his view of human life is how brief and curious people's lives are. Yet when you come to talk to them, you realize how strong they are and how unbelievably rich their lives are and also how subtle and various their lives are. And I think that is the tradition of photograph of photographing that I'm trying to pursue, which is getting under the skin of what's here and trying to really show people that everybody has a story and that um you know, people's lives are fascinating and optimistic, um, not always, unfortunately, but in general, and um, and move forward in that way. And I, I don't know where that fits in, if I'm truly honest with you about your question about where it fits into the American tradition, because, you know, um, some of the examples that we talked about are a little bit different than that, I think. Well, before we turn to Devin, um, with my last question in mind about where you're... F- uh, work fits into the American tradition, and with reference to your life as a as an immigrant, so to speak, to the American landscape, yeah. do you feel yourself as an outsider or an insider to the communities that you photograph? <laughs> uh, the honest—I've been asked that before. Actually, the honest answer is both, um, or neither. You no, know, I think uh, you can. You don't have to choose. It's not a necessarily a no, binary. I mean, I mean, I mean. I th- maybe it depends on the project. I think. I think with Ghent, for example, um, I'll give you two different examples. So with Ghent, um, I felt very much both. Um, I felt, you know, I'd lived there for a good number of years. I felt like a very much a part of the community. We had a small farm there, which was, you know, we'd we'd work very hard to make part of the community. At the same time, not being uh, an American 
citizen or, or naturalized, of course, um, you know, I did feel something like an outsider. I mean, it is true to say also that um, the accent can help you along a little bit because it maybe in some ways it's not as threatening that I'm almost like a, a visitor here. So that's not as threatening if it's somebody who's actually from here. Um, so I, I felt at any given time I could feel as an insider or an outsider and I, I can, that can be an advantage or a disadvantage, but I, there's also a slightly different way of looking at that question because, um, although I'm part Irish myself, I have an Irish passport. When I photographed the Irish community, um, I don't know that I felt either an insider or an outsider. Um, I mean, I definitely wasn't part of the community in a literal sense. Um, but I think that work was more about connection and disconnection. And I think that in some ways I was really fascinated by how the Irish community there were trying to stay connected to what being Irish meant, even though they were disconnected. At a time when I was really trying to figure out, maybe still am to some extent, what is my connection to? Maybe, maybe this is more of a reflection of of my sense of disconnection because having been out of the UK for 21 years, am I still part of that or am I now part of America? You know, it, there's a bigger picture for me, which is, you know, inside, outside, connected, disconnected. That is in my own life, a very real thing. Um, in addition to when I'm photographing people or communities, do I feel insider, outsider, connected, disconnected? So, you know, I think there are there are lots of different emotions that go with it. I I, I can't simply answer your question and say, I feel one thing or the other. It really does depend. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on the questions that you ask, because the yes. it's the I like to say that it's the questions that we ask ourselves as photographers, which opens up the landscapes where we hope to find the answers. And I get this uh, sentiment from the twentieth. <clears throat> century German philosopher Hans Georg Gadamer, who wrote about the, um, essentially a phenomenology of the phenomenology of understanding, what it means to understand something and what is the phenomenon of understanding. Understanding is something that's always changing. We're not necessarily fixed on any one particular understanding. We're always asking new questions, which leads us on to answers, which then lead us on to further questions that say, uh, it's a circle of, of questioning and understanding and interpretation. And so I think, and there, there's, a, there's, there's, this is a bit of a cliche, but there's, there's a certain non-duality between the questions that we ask and the answers that we find. The, you cannot have a question without an answer and vice versa. And so it, it all depends on your interest and your motivations. And I said this to Simon Murphy, that even people who... Um, even naturalized citizens, for example, they don't necessarily feel at home. They can, you, you can, for example, the, perhaps the people that you photograph in Trump country, the people who find something valuable in the um, ramblings of Trump, um, perhaps they feel alienated to a certain extent, you know? So, yes. um, and, and in a sense, perhaps you feel more at home there, uh, than they might, for example. Um, so it's a complicated question. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think the um, you know I don't I would say I probably never fully understand anything, perhaps um, you know, because there's always more questions to ask, aren't there? So 
But, you know, I think also it depends because I might be talking to Trump supporters about Brexit and they might be talking about, you know, what is fueling their kind of interest in Trump. And in my opinion, I think there were many, there were some very similar themes there. Mm -hmm. And at that point, at that point, we're both, although we disagree, we're both inside the same conversation. We're connected by the same themes, the same uh, discussion. And you find yourself but, against the same horizon as well. Yeah, but but that's, you know, that's that's not... And then at the next conversation, five minutes later, you could find yourself in the opposite direction. So, you know, it does it does very much depend. But um, I think it's an interesting question. I have been asked asked that, and I I, I most often say um, around here, you know, it, it's it's typically both, but sometimes it's 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 neither mm. for sure. So before we end our conversation, um, I'd like to go back to the landscape where it all began, and your relationship to this landscape the landscape of devon and exeter i think it is and the similarities that you see between um devon and the hudson river valley what yeah. what 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 do you see in your newfound terrain that reminds you of home or your your I landscape mean, still, of origin i still love uh Devon and Cornwall, I mean, it's so evocative for me. Um, spent a lot of time in Cornwall as well, but but obviously grew up uh, primarily in Devon. Um, you know, we talked about the light. I mean, that that for me is is there are moments here where I I feel the same thing about the light. And in fact, um, the photographer I mentioned earlier, Robert, um, you know, sometimes I message him so I'm familiar. That reminds me, you know, because his work is is very reminiscent for me um, of the Devon landscape, but. As an anecdotal answer to your question, when we were looking for a place to live up in the Hudson Valley here, I described earlier how the uh, west side of the river is a little more craggy, mountainous, uh, it's more pine forest, it's a little bit more dark and mysterious. The east side of the river where we ended up um, is more agricultural, it's more rolling hills, uh, more deciduous uh, forest. And uh, it's very interesting, you know, we we originally were looking on the west side of the river and uh, to uh, to basically find a place. And we didn't really ever feel at home there. We never really felt like we could, we were comfortable there. And somebody suggested we look over on this side of the river. And um, we we immediately felt at home here. You know, there was something very evocative about the, the landscape. My wife is from the Cotswolds, so not too dissimilar uh, to Devon. And we really felt like this felt a bit like that type of environment that we grew up in. And, um, and so when you ask about similarities, you know, it, it feels like in a way, a sort of home from home in, in, in many respects. Mm -hmm. And you're, you still have a relationship to Devon. Yeah. Still have family there. Still go back and visit. Um, and you're, you're absolutely. friends with Sean Davy. Yes, Sean, I um I had, I, had her on in the, I had her on in the last podcast, which was a fascinating I know, discussion. I saw yeah. that. I've <laughs> I've listened to some of it. It was a very uh long and deep discussion that you had there. And I, I hope it's it's very uh very hard act to follow, I would say, um, from my point of view. But uh Sean, I, I, I took part in one of Sean's uh in an online workshop which was sort of coming out of the pandemic. I really, I think as we all 
were at the time and probably still are thirsting for community, thirsting for uh, contact and discussion with other people. And, um, you know, Sean's online workshop basically allowed me to, to do that. And I really wanted to get a greater understanding of um, my work and how I could go a bit deeper with my work. And in this new series of photographs that I was making, how um, I could bring a more subjective um, element into it, how I could get out of my own mind, open up a little bit. And her online workshop was really great. Uh, very much enjoyed it. And uh, it did transpire that she lives uh, 20 minutes from where I grew up. And um, so uh, I was able not only to um, go back and visit her the last time I was in the UK, but uh, also to basically continue the conversation with her a little bit. So she's been helping me for a little bit um, as I have been uh, working on my new series. She's been helping me think about my work, not in direct relation to the work that I'm making, but just for myself, um, just to help me think about what I'm doing a little bit. So what do you think the most important takeaway was? What did you learn from Shan that you might not have learned otherwise? Uh, that we're too we're too quick to to be in our own to too quick to overthink things to uh, premeditate uh, to uh, almost kind of uh, define what we're looking for before we go and look for it, uh, as opposed to see what the world offers us. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, in the work that I'm currently making, I'm trying to see what the world offers me. Um, whether it's people that I come across or whether it's situations, uh, landscapes, buildings, you know, I'm, I'm more open to receiving the world uh, in that sense than perhaps I was when I was making the Ghent work, which was about finding people to photograph, uh, making the time, going to spend time with them, photographing them, moving on to the next one. So there's a real sense now in which you're waiting for something to happen. You're letting the world um, reveal itself to you. Well, I th I'd like to think so. I'm, I'm working towards that, mm -hmm. for sure. I'm not saying I'm fully successful in it, but uh, I'm trying to work in, in, in that way um, to a greater extent, and it's been uh, great to be able to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. And you've published the book recently titled, is it titled All of Us? Well, the, these are the Ghent portraits we talked about. It was yeah, published yeah. in 2020, actually, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so having done that, what's next for you? Well, I, I don't... I sort of encourage myself not to think in terms of going out and making another book. I mean, I continue to to work on assignments as they come up um, uh, and, and also, you know, spend as much time as I can working on my own work, which... Uh, is this series of portraits uh, uh, to do with people who, you know, in their connectedness to the land and then introducing other subjective elements. So I'm working on that at the moment, and I would like to think that that will form itself into something that has uh, a narrative and some cohesion over the next year. And uh, we'll see what that turns into. I mean, if it turns into a book, that's lovely. If it's an exhibition, that's great. Um, you know, I, but I'm not doing it necessarily with that end in mind um we'll see where we get to with it all right well uh promised you that this wouldn't go on for too long and i believe you have other commitments to attend to so um i'd like to thank you for this uh, really interesting conversation and this insight into your work um and well i appreciate your interest yeah it's been really great to learn 
bit more about the historical and cultural motivations behind your work and how that ties into your look at the Hudson River Valley without really referencing the river at all, which is quite interesting. Right. Um, yes, exactly. Especially in contrast to how Thomas Cole looked at the same landscape. So, yeah, it's been really fascinating and um, I wish you all the best of luck in your in your projects. Well, you too, in, in your time in uh, in Finland. I, uh, I, I know you go to great lengths to make your own work and uh uh it sounds like you're uh, sounds like you're um you're quite well set there so i wish you best of luck with all the work you're making thank you very much richard thank you peter if you enjoyed listening to my conversation with richard bevan please consider supporting the podcast on patreon by following the link in the description until next time thanks again from me peter holiday